In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We ask you now, O God, to use and rule over our thoughts and our words, so that it may be your word which is spoken, and your word which is heard. Amen. We continue today with our Lenten homily series on the four last things. In the previous weeks, we've heard about death and judgment and purgatory, and today I get to give you hell. Uh, Our English word, hell, you know, it has a long history, of course, uh, and our pagan ancestors would have understood it as being simply the abode of the dead. And as such, it would have been equivalent to the Hebrew Sheol that we come across in the, in the Psalms. It's often translated the grave. Or, you know, the, the Greeks would have, Greek uh, mythology would have talked about Hades. Um, and, but that's not the sense, you know, that's the sense in which we use the word, for example, in the Apostles' Creed when we talk about Jesus descending into hell and then rising again on the third day. But of course, the word has taken on a distinctively Christian meaning, and that's what I want to focus on here today as one of the four last things, focusing on what the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls the state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God. And that's important. It's a state of definitive, and it's a state, it's a definitive state that is a state of self-exclusion from communion with God. Now, throughout human history, or Christian history, it it shouldn't be surprising. I mean, uh, people have understandably recoiled from the idea of eternal damnation, never-ending punishment for our sins. And some people have had a hard time squaring the idea of a loving God with a God who would impose such a punishment. And so we see this heresy called universalism popping up all the time, the idea that everyone ultimately will be saved. I mean, after all, didn't St. Paul tell his beloved son in, the, in, the, uh, in God, uh, St. Timothy, tell him that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? And even some Catholic theologians have kind of toyed with the idea, not of denying the existence of hell, but sometimes speculating whether anybody actually ends up there. But there is no contradiction between God's infinite mercy and love on the one hand and his justice on the other, because he will show mercy and forgiveness to anyone who asks for it because of his infinite love. He will not only cover over our sins, he will blot them out, wipe them away, and make all things new if we turn to him. But he will not force himself on any of us also because of his infinite love. If we turn our backs on him and definitively declare that we want nothing to do with him, He will give us what we ask, even though it breaks his heart. And if we take our Bible seriously, and especially if we take the words of our Lord seriously, we cannot deny the existence of hell because no one talks about hell more in sacred scripture than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember how in the parable of the sheep and the goats, he said to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. 
I was naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And in several other parables, the workers of iniquity in the story are cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And was probably his most famous parable about the afterlife, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, you'll recall, cries out, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this fire. But I think the strongest, most striking image of hell that come from the lips of our divine master are where he describes the fiery Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Bit of background. Gehenna was the trash dump of ancient Jerusalem. Constant rubbish fires burning, a stinking mess, constant stinking burning refuse with maggots crawling all over everything, all this rotting trash. And it had been turned into a trash heap, though, because centuries before, evil kings in Judah had built a shrine to the vile pagan god Moloch, and part of Moloch's worship was that babies were burned in fire to him. And so when King Josiah destroyed that shrine, he, uh, he made sure that it would never be used for that purpose again. And he turned it into a stinking rubbish heap. That's the image that our Lord uses for hell, and it's a very apt image. These scriptural images of fire and torment are very graphic and are meant to impress upon us the deadly seriousness of turning our backs on God. But as our catechism reminds us, the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. God made us for one purpose only, and that is for us to spend eternity with him. He made each one of us so that we could live forever in his love. And anything less, anything less than that, will ultimately not satisfy us and not satisfy those deepest longings of our heart. As St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. Imagine the gnawing futility and resentment and the hateful, spiteful, shriveled soul of a person who has definitively turned away from God, who is the only source of happiness. And imagine that futility and resentment stretching on forever and ever with no relief or respite. We are, in the end, punished not so much for our sins as by our sins. This, I think, is part of the genius of Dante's Inferno, where that great poet describes all the punishments in each circle of hell as being uniquely suited to the sins of those who are damned. And just as the Gehenna of Jesus' day was a stinking, burning rubbish heap, so every soul that ends up in hell is a soul that is wasted itself. 
No one goes to hell in the end who does not choose to do so. And because of this rejection of God involves the soul turning in on its puny self. In a sense, the damned carry their own hell within them forever. Another great poet and playwright, Englishman Christopher Marlowe, a contemporary of Shakespeare, in his great play, Dr. Faustus. Remember, Dr. Faustus had, the plot of the play is Dr. Faustus sells his soul to the devil. And Mephistopheles is the devil who is sent to accompany him. And, and, and Faustus asks, is surprised. You know, here's Mephistopheles in this university town. And he says, where are you damned? And Mephistopheles replies, in hell. And Faustus asks him, how comes it then that thou art out of hell? And Mephistopheles' answer is telling. He says, why this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkest thou that I, who saw the face of God and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with ten thousand hells in being deprived of everlasting bliss? All places shall be hell that are not heaven. As our catechism says, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary, and persistence in it to the end. We lock ourselves in hell. The door of escape is in this life always open, right up to the very end of our lives. Remember how the good thief was promised paradise as he was dying on the cross. But to do so, we have to stop turning away from God and turn around. And that, after all, is the literal meaning of the word convert, turn around. We pray for this conversion in ourselves every day. And we will pray it when we say the Roman canon, save us from final damnation. If we turn to him, and this is the amazing thing about God's love and mercy, if we will turn to him ever so slightly, God will meet us as he did the thief on the cross with his grace, and he will save us from final damnation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.